From the True North Podcast Network, this is Philosophia, a show where we discuss the philosophical concepts of the classical tradition and their application to daily events and our lives today. I'm David Shank, and in today's episode, I'm going to be discussing competing moral theories, competing ethical th- theories of ethics, is what we usually call them in philosophy, and how a, I wouldn't even want to call it a confusion, a lost category that we really have largely forgotten drives so much of the error in our moral thinking today. All right, so last week, I ended off with a promissory note about spelling out what it is in our confusions in moral theory, theories of ethics, what philosophers especially call meta-ethics, the metaphysics of ethics, the foundations of ethics is what we mean by that, right? How that confusion has driven so much of the deformation of our moral thinking today, and with that, educational theory and the moral sort of positions within educational theory today at the teaching colleges and education departments all across this country. This is an area where I have real insider knowledge. I've been teaching philosophy at the university level since 1993 when I was a graduate student. I have been teaching to education majors in the teaching colleges and education departments since 1993. And I have been watching what has been happening in the teaching colleges and education departments. It's a natural question for a parent to ask when they see on those ubiquitous Zoom calls now the lecture content from the teacher in their public schools. It's a natural question for mom and dad to ask, how did this happen? How did it get this bad? For the past year and change especially, moms and dads all across this country have witnessed what actually goes on in the public school classroom because it's on Zoom and they are seeing what the teacher is teaching, how the teacher is teaching it, and, and in many cases, failing to teach. They are seeing what it is that their sons and daughters are actually being given. And they're horrified, justifiably horrified and disgusted by it. Lately, there have been all these kerfuffles over it, right? Loudoun County down in Virginia was a driving force, I think, for how it is that Yunkin became governor of Virginia now. I think he seized on that aspect of parental disapproval, not just of what the teachers are teaching, but more importantly of how they are teaching it, the kind of moral and political bias that the teachers and the school districts are exhibiting. Those of you who are old enough, like me, to remember the 70s, the 80s, even the early 90s, will know it wasn't always like this. Public education in America always had more than its fair share of flaws. But this wasn't always one of them. It wasn't always the case that public education was horribly politically biased. It is today. So why? How did this happen? 
How did public education in America become such a spectacular moral failure? It has done it. It's a natural question, though. Man, what happened? I do think at teaching colleges and education departments at the colleges and universities across this country, absolutely. Ideologues took over those departments. Intellectual rabbits turned zealots. And they, they pushed all of their students in that direction. Sure, absolutely. But that really doesn't get to the heart of the issue. How did those ed doctorate holding tenured professors become such ideologues? How did higher education become overrun with ideologues, which it is? What has happened there? It isn't a political failure that has driven this. It is an intellectual failure, a moral intellectual failure, a failure to see the category person or personhood for what it is, a failure especially to see that persons are not reducible to anything else, not reducible to their environment, their cultural context, their race, their sex, their, as they call it nowadays, gender identity, using the jargon of the day. Personhood is not reducible to any or all of those things. It is not reducible to your biology. It is not reducible to any other categories. The failure to see that, I say, has driven all of the moral failures that we see in public education today. And they are so many and so deep. What's the real difference that you're going to find between a public school and a well-run, prospering, classical Christian school? Whereby last time I talked a lot about how when you visit a classical school, it just seems a completely different environment from what you find even at the wealthiest public schools, which it is. At an intuitive level, all of the teachers and administrators at a classical school get the category personhood. They understand it. It would never occur to them to regard the children whom they are overseeing as reducible to little biocultural organisms into which you input a bunch of moral and political ideological convictions and you, you, you turn them into the sorts of young adults popping out of the system that you want to accomplish. That kind of social engineering, that kind of attempt at moral engineering, they would never want to do that. They would understand instinctively that that is sick and wrong, which it is. Okay, but why? Why do the educators and administrators at a classical school instinctively, without even thinking about it, get that and see it and refuse to treat their students as if they were these little ideological belief receptacles. An excellent philosopher who just quit from Portland State University, Peter Bogosian calls dogma factories, which is what the universities have become today. I say that as someone who himself just left a, a university exactly what that place is now. Why is it 
that the administrators and educators at a classical Christian school will get that, will see it intuitively, instinctively, without having to think about it. But at the public schools, it never even occurs to them that such a category might exist. I mean, it isn't that they reject the category. They have no awareness that it's even on offer for our understanding of human nature and with it our understanding of moral theory, of right and wrong, and what grounds them. They don't even realize the option is there, especially because at the universities these days, especially in the education departments, flatly nobody reads old books anymore. They have no awareness of natural law, theory, and ethics because they've never even read about natural law, theory, and ethics or what drives it. Or they think it's just a bunch of, you know, outmoded religious hocus-pocus nonsense. It is nothing of the kind. One can hold all of these positions that I'm about to spell out without any special religious convictions. I think when you look at their foundations carefully, they lead straight away to God. But people can have excellent reasons without being religious at all to hold these positions. And I don't think they can, with any consistency, hold the contraries. In moral philosophy, there are three great theories of the foundations of ethics. There is what is called, popularly, utilitarianism. The philosophers among you will know better than to call it just utilitarianism. You'll understand it's the proper name for this is consequentialism of which utilitarianism is really just one species. But in the popular jargon, there's utilitarianism. There is what is called deontological theory in ethics, of whom Kant is the most famous defender. And there is what is called natural law theory, or more broadly, virtue ethics, of which natural law theory is one special form. It is in and only in natural law theory, I say, that the category personhood is properly understood and its primacy for all of our moral reasoning is properly seen and understood. Kant tried to capture it with his famous categorical imperative, but he didn't get there. Not quite. Sorry, those of you who are Kantians, but overwhelmingly, I mean pretty much to a person, at the teaching colleges and education departments and throughout the administrations at the universities and colleges in America today, private, public, I don't care, nearly all of them in nearly all of their thinking are utilitarian, consequentialist. Rightness or wrongness of some action is a function of what it gets you. Whichever course of action leads to your most desirable result, that's the right thing to do. That is the kind of mindset, uh, a, a purely cost-benefit-driven right, way of thinking that drives all utilitarian theory. Rightness and wrongness are determined by results. The goodness or badness of the outcomes of your chosen action. The right thing to do is whichever course of action produces or on your best evidence is most likely to produce 
the best overall results. See that idea? And overwhelmingly, all of this is happening unconsciously, I think, for the administrators, the professors, and, and the, um, how should I put it, osmotically, it is being inserted into or, or sort of like fed into the students at the education departments. When they make their utilitarian calculation, most desirable results is always going to be cashed out in terms of what most avoids suffering and what maximizes pleasure. Whatever makes people the happiest and produces the least amount of unhappiness or suffering or oppression or whatever jargon they want to throw onto it. Whatever inconveniences or harms the fewest and pleases and benefits the most, that's the right thing to do. That's how they work this out. And they don't even realize that that's how they're working this out, but I've watched them do it. That's how they work this out. In moral theory, utilitarianism has obvious objections. Uh, they even made a popular TV show about it, you know, The Good Place, where they go through this famous or infamous right, dilemma for utilitarian moral theory called the trolley problem, which has indefinitely many variants of it now, you know, in the journals. We used to make jokes at dinner parties about the trolley problem. You get situations like the trolley problem or what's called the organ farming case where, you know, you got this vagrant coming in off the street who's got a nasty cough. They're under general anesthetic. The doctor notices, you know, this person is a complete Bowery bum, a career alcoholic. Never going to amount to anything, let's suppose, right? But they do have these awfully nice, fresh, supremely healthy pink organs. Well, we could, you know, save six lives if we just farm all of the organs from this Bowery bum who is never going to amount to anything. One of them's going to cure cancer. Another one's going to, you know, like master the science of future space travel. Another one's going to solve, you know, uh, cold fusion for us so that we can have clean energy forever. Blah, 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 on and on. Right? All I got to do as the doctor is, you know, while this patient is under general anesthetic, they won't suffer. They won't feel any pain or anything. I just, you know, um, give them the injection that snuffs them out and farm the organs to transplant them to these otherwise dying patients, right, who are going to completely change the world and improve the future for everyone. Under the utilitarian calculus, it's hard to justify not doing that. See the dilemma? And you get a similar sort of situation with what they call the lifeboat problem. Same sort of deal. You know, we're all stuck on a lifeboat. There are six of us, but, um, you know, there's only space for five to survive and how we make the decision about who goes and who stays. Same sort of thing. Deontological ethics, started by Immanuel Kant in the late 18th century and early 19th, runs directly against this way of thinking. Philosophers who become dissatisfied with utilitarian theory tend to lean toward deontological theory. Kant's idea was the motives behind an action are more important than the action itself, oftentimes, morally speaking. Not practically speaking, just in terms of rightness or wrongness. 
moral permissibility or impermissibility, right? Kant did not mean we should never do cost-benefit analyses. That's silly. Of course we do. I mean, anyone who's like, you cannot have a functioning economy without that, right? But his point was, you cannot reduce moral thinking to cost-benefit analyses because you cannot reduce persons to um, vessels for pain and pleasure, happiness and unhappiness, right? Okay. Famously, he came up with his categorical imperative as a kind of a test rule, right, to see whether or not one was respecting the moral inviolability of persons. What he didn't have, I say, is anything like a proper foundation for that intuition that there is a kind of default, a kind of prima facie moral inviolability of persons just on the grounds that they are persons, that they are people, not things. They are some ones, not some things. In natural law theory, this concept is front and center. In natural law theory, there is a basis for this. This was made most famous, of course, by St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, but its origins go all the way back to Aristotle. The notion here is Kant got some things right. He was right that the rightness or wrongness of some action isn't just a function of what it gets you. If you're looking at what it gets you, you are already morally perverse. You are already deranged in your moral thinking. If you're allowing that to be what drives your judgment about right and wrong, you've got right and wrong, all wrong. So what does do it? Not just motive, but which kind of motive? In Christian philosophy, this is well known. We are made in the image of God, not in the image of the phylogenetic tree. Humanity's position on the phylogenetic tree as the climax species is not just some lucky, happy accident. We are made as image bearers of God himself. The best of us are, the worst of us are, and everyone in between is. There is no such thing as a human being who is not reflecting the face of God himself. When you think of persons in those terms, not in biological terms or in sociological terms or in sociobiological terms, but in expressly theistic terms, where to be a person means to be created as a special sort of reflection of God in his universe, that we are his image bearers, as a friend described it a few weekends ago, so that when we intentionally do harm to another person, we are intentionally doing harm to God. There you have your foundation for a kind of default moral inviolability of persons where you cannot ever again with any moral or intellectual seriousness treat them as if they were mere things, no matter how complicated the information processing in the brain in all of its modularity is. You cannot ever again treat them as if they were mere vessels for your or your administrator's 
ideological convictions. You cannot ever again treat that little nine-year-old boy or girl as if what they needed most in life was to be taught to think in your way. And they're just vessels for you training them into what you think is the right way of thinking. Insofar as they are image bearers of God, you cannot violate their autonomy and sleep well at night. That is what is hopelessly, miserably, perhaps irretrievably, I hope not, but we'll see, missing in public education today, K-12, through and frankly, at the universities too. And that is what is front and center at the classical Christian schools. In the next episode, I'll get into the details of these competing moral theories and chase out how it is that lacking that category of personhood really ruins the educational system today. This has been Philosophia. I'm David Shank. Thanks for joining, and I'll see you next time.